Hello and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. Catherine Faulkner has had such a fascinating career. A former investigative journalist at the Daily Mail, she used to go undercover to get to the heart of her stories. Then she went on to be head of news at the Times and while on maternity leave wrote her first book, Greenwich Park an absolutely gripping thriller about toxic relationships and unwanted friends that's a total treat to read. I loved hearing about all of this, especially a particularly hair-raising undercover mission involving designer fashion and an escape dash to the airport, and her memories of stashing her laptop in the pram so that she could snatch writing time if her baby fell asleep. She was absolutely great, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Catherine? Welcome to the Sunday Salon. Thank you so much for coming on. It's it's such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for affording me an hour away from my children at the weekend, which is always lovely. <laughs> I loved your book, as you know. You very kindly dropped it off in person because we actually live around the corner from one another. It was a kind of sort of special lockdown delivery. You um, <laughs> you, you dropped it off at my doorstep. It was very exciting. And I'm sort of so impressed that you wrote it because you've also got this hugely successful career that we're going to talk about and fitting that in around everything is astonishing but I wonder if before we launch into all those questions you could just give listeners a sort of overview of Greenwich Park how would you kind of describe it in that awful phrase an elevator pitch Oh, thank you for that very generous introduction, of course. So Greenwich Park is a psychological thriller and it centres on the life of Helen, who is a pregnant mother, who is a pregnant mother to be, I should say, who has a sort of seemingly perfect life. And she strikes up accidentally, really, a, a friendship with a unpredictable, gregarious single mother called Rachel at her first antenatal class. And... As a result of this friendship, her sort of perfect life starts to unravel. She is increasingly unsettled by Rachel's strange behaviour, but finds it difficult to distance herself from her uh, friendship. And it becomes apparent that Rachel knows a secret about Helen's life, which threatens to destroy her closest relationships, including her marriage. And... And am I right in thinking you wrote it when you were on maternity leave yourself? Is that is that right? Or have I just made yeah. that assumption? No, no, I did. I had the idea for Greenwich Park in my first antenatal class. And actually, the opening scene to, to Greenwich Park is quite closely based on, on my real life experience. I was sort of sitting in this strange environment with all these other pregnant women and I just thought this is so strange and suddenly we're expected to talk about all these intimate things and there's this expectation that we'll all be friends and I just suddenly had this idea of what if you came across somebody at this antenatal class you made friends with them but then they turned out to be not the kind of person that you want in your life at all but you couldn't get rid of them um so that was how I had the idea and then of course, the first six, and then I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write this book on my on my on my maternity leave, maybe. And then, and I'd already always wanted to write a book, but this idea felt different to me um, to all the other books that I'd started and not finished, or that I'd thrown away because I didn't think they were very good. Of course, then you have the baby, and uh, <laughs> the first six months of your maternity leave, are, it was very difficult for me to do anything except to just keep this baby alive. Um, but I did try and write 
little bits when she was napping I would sometimes just have the laptop in the pram while I was pushing her around the park which was the only way she fell asleep and then as soon as she was asleep I'd duck into a cafe get the laptop out try and write a bit and then she'd wake up invariably but it didn't work brilliantly well but when she was six months old I said to my husband what do you think about me doing one of those novel writing courses because I could either go back to work or I could take the rest of this maternity leave and try and try and actually write this book because I'm I'm actually really I'd actually really love to try and write it and it felt it felt like a good it felt like a good time in a weird way because I although you know you have a young baby I also had a very very demanding job and I'd always really struggled to write around that so my husband was really supportive and so I I did the Faber novel writing course in the last six months of my maternity leave and between getting a bit of help with childcare. Uh, from family and also I hired somebody once one day a week to to take my daughter so I could write I managed to write a very rough first draft in the last six months of my maternity leave while completing the Faber novel writing course which was an evening course which was really brilliant because it just gave me the structure and the kind of sense of deadlines I'm quite a deadline driven person as most journalists are and then I had a really rough first draft by the end of my maternity leave but then I went back to work and did nothing for ages on it and came back to it to do a big edit and found that it was in terrible shape but then did a big edit on it and then sent it out to agents after that. And the Faber course so I'm probably going to ask you a bit more about procedure later on but as it's come up it it is really interesting what exactly you say it gave you you structure and deadlines in what sense what do you have to do something every week like do a chapter every week do you spend a long time on theory how does it how does it work when you're writing a book concurrently that you've already started bits and pieces of? Sure. So with the Faber course, what what happens is you have um, this thing called um, a PP, which is a peer presentation. And every week, a different member of the group does a peer presentation, which is however many thousand, I think it's like sort of three, three to 5,000 words of their book. And you, everyone reads it beforehand and then in the session itself, everyone kind of gives you their feedback on that piece of work, on that piece of writing. So every few weeks, you've got to submit a chunk. But I think the key thing about the course is really just that you're checking in every week with a group of people who know you're writing a novel and who are talking about, oh, how far have you got? How many words did you write this week? And it just sort of creates the creates a kind of formality around it which wouldn't exist if you were just on your own writing it at home and I suppose it also kind of gives you the confidence to to say I'm doing I'm writing a novel and I have this structure around it and I am a writer and I'm uh, I'm part of a cohort of people who are on a writing a novel course I suppose psychologically it was helpful to to me to kind of formalize it um, in order to actually take it seriously I guess and give myself the permission to take it seriously and you know this is a real thing that I'm doing and I'm going to try and complete it by the end of the course. Can I just rewind and ask you a bit of background about about your sort of life and, and path into both writing and journalism you mentioned you had a very demanding job so you were joint head of the news at the the times and and before that you'd worked in big jobs in, including being head of investigations at the mail. Can you just tell me how your path into that was? What were you like as a as a kid? Were you were, were you very into sort of current affairs? Were you very bookish? Did you always know that that was the path you wanted to take? 
I was very into stories as a child and I really have always known that that stories are my thing. I have been writing stories as long as I can remember. I remember my year three teacher saying that she took my stories home to read to her children and I used to make all my stories into real books <laughs> and I just really felt that they should be books and I used to staple bits of my dad's printer paper together to make books I was just always doing it and so and English and writing and reading has has always been my thing so in that sense it was kind of clear to me what I wanted to do but then the idea for getting into journalism I suppose came to me when I was a kind of a young teenager I think I had a friend at school who who was part of this thing called Children's Express which is a dreadful name but it's a sort of news agency run by young teenagers um I think it still exists I think it's called headliners now uh where you it's kind of a cross between a news agency run by teenagers and a youth club and you go along and produce journalism and it was featured in you know national publications and things and I went along with her just to kind of try it and I to be honest there was a boy there that I really fancied which was probably why (laughs) (laughs) but actually also discovered that I really I thought this this is something I really enjoy and it was all the things I liked I liked writing I liked my name being in the newspaper I was very attracted to that idea I liked being nosy about people's lives and so interviewing people was really fun and I made some friends there and I suppose that's how I kind of got the idea for it and so I started saying you know I'd like like to be a journalist when I grow up and I think my parents were really encouraging of that because they saw that it was it suited me you know it's all the things I loved it's writing it's being nosy about people talking to people I've always been quite outgoing I've always wanted to travel go to interesting places see interesting things so it felt like quite a natural fit and I never really deviated from that idea that I wanted to do journalism actually after that and the more I did of it between doing student journalism and work experience on local papers, the more I just thought, yeah, I love this. This is great. This is me. This is what I want to do. But in the back of my mind, I did always want to write a book and and try had tried a number of times to write books, but they had never really been... I think I knew deep down they weren't good enough until I started writing Greenwich Park. And then then that just felt felt a bit different, actually. And I thought, no, I need to take this seriously now. And, um, and this is the time to do it. So you went to Cambridge University and did you do student journalism there? Yes, I did. I studied history at Cambridge, yes, and I wanted to get involved in student journalism the whole time and it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but it took me until my final year to actually pluck up the courage to go along to a news meeting of the student newspaper at Varsity and to say that I wanted to do it. And I think I just had huge imposter syndrome about the whole thing. I just, maybe that's quite common. I don't know, among mm. among women, among state educated girls at Cambridge University, I was really intimidated by all the people who did varsity. They were all so confident. They'd all gone to public schools. And I just worried that they'd all think I w- that I wouldn't be good enough. And it was silly. It was so silly because I went along and not only was I, perfectly good at it in fact I was just as good as as all of them but also they were really nice and really welcoming to me and friendly and I just had nothing to worry about but yeah it took me ages to pluck up the courage to do it but when I did do it I really enjoyed it I loved writing articles for Varsity and I did get quite actually wrote an I interviewed a girl who was working as an escort 
while she was studying at Cambridge University in order to pay her tuition fees. And when I wrote that story, it just kind of went bonkers and all the newspapers wanted it, you know, all the the Telegraph, the Times, the Sun, they all suddenly wanted this story and they descended on Cambridge looking for me and trying to get me to to reveal who this girl was <laughs> who I'd interviewed anonymously and she was real I mean it was all true but I she she was absolutely terrified and just didn't want any part of it and didn't had no idea it was going to be such a big thing and I ended up getting interviewed on the BBC local BBC about it and it was all kind of mad and that kind of gave me a taste for having what it feels like as a journalist to have a real story that everyone wants and uh there was no going back for me after that. I I just loved it, and <laughs> uh, yeah, and so that was that was um, that was my first scoop. And how did you then move from student journalism to sort of Fleet Street journalism? So as I mentioned, I worked for the student newspaper Varsity at Cambridge, and they have a fund for they support one student every year to go on to study journalism, and I knew by the end of university that that's what I wanted to do and I was very lucky that I I got that scholarship the varsity scholarship and that paid for me to go and study at City University to study newspaper journalism and so I went and did that and that was great and while I was there I did as much work experience as I could on different local papers and some national papers as well but it was a tricky time because I started my journalism training in 2008 just before the crash and in 2009 when I was graduating from my journalism postgraduate diploma all the training schemes at national papers were kind of under under threat and some were closing and I actually got a place on the on the mirror training scheme which I was so excited about and then after offering me the place they actually said actually Trinity Mirror isn't going to run the training scheme this year so that didn't happen so uh, I was a bit gutted about that And, and so I applied for everywhere and I I didn't get a place on the Times graduate scheme which I was really disappointed about but then I did get a place on the Daily Mail training scheme and so that's where I ended up starting my career really in newspapers and I'm very very lucky that I did because it was a fantastic scheme and I learned a huge amount. And can you tell me a little bit about what it's like working in that news environment? I mean full disclosure we actually worked at the Daily Mail at the same time as one another but we didn't know each other (laughs) but I had kind of clocked you and I was always completely impressed by you because you were I think doing investigations at the time which seemed like this incredibly cool area of journalism and and although on features I would sometimes do sort of what would be loosely termed an investigation it always felt massively exciting and I was always quite jealous of people who did it all the time well I might you know one day be going off and dancing with dogs and the next day be sort of fishing for seaweed (laughs) (laughs) can you tell me about the sort of cut and thrust of that kind of investigative news environment yeah well I I didn't start off doing investigations of course I started off as just a a a normal run-of-the-mill news reporter and then I spent a long time on the news desk before I started doing investigations but really it was my experiences on the news desk doing news editing that made me want to do investigations so much because really it was born out of the frustrations that I had of news editing is so challenging you have to be across maybe 30 stories the big stories of the day and you have to go into this really intimidating environment which is news conference and and sit in front of the editor and say okay this is the news and you have to be briefed on every detail of every story and talk convincingly about them and sell the stories to the editor and um 
you know, sometimes get completely shot down and told that they're not stories at all. But in order to do that, the pace is just so frenetic and you just have to be across this story, this story, this story, and there's new stories coming in all the time. And every day you have to start all over again with a clean slate, right? New new day, new set of 30 stories. And there were so many things that I wanted to explore in more detail and that were just kind of whizzing by as I constantly tried to keep up with this churn of news. And I really wanted to do more deep diving into big stories. And so that's why I wanted to move from the news desk into investigations. And I was very lucky that I was given the opportunity to do that. So I was made head of investigations and I was allowed to pick my own team of reporters. And it was a fantastic opportunity and I loved it. And um, and we did some things that I'm really proud of from investigations into the sale of NHS data to charities who were harassing elderly people, cold calling them, to investigations into online grooming by Islamic State. So it was really, I was just kind of given a completely blank canvas and and it was fantastic fun. And I did some quite a lot of undercover reporting myself as well, which was sort of incredibly rewarding when it when it came off, although quite terrifying at times. But yeah, all fantastic experience. Can I ask you what it's like going undercover? I mean, these questions are going to sound ridiculous to you, I'm sure. But do you, I mean, how do you disguise yourself? Have you worn body cameras? Do you have a plan? What's your sort of escape route if if you get um, identified as a as a journalist? And, and presumably you have to go through really complicated legal manoeuvres as well to make sure that it's in the public interest and so on. Yeah. So there's a lot of preparation before you actually put the body camera on. There's a huge amount of lead up to that and lots of work with the legal. You have to work really closely with lawyers from the very beginning, from the very first time that you have an idea for an investigation. You're talking to lawyers, talking about, can you get this information any other way? Because going undercover has to be the last resort. And it has to be only because you, you feel you can't get a story any other way than going undercover. What's the public interest? Can it be defended? All of that work goes into it from the very beginning. Um, But when it comes to the point of actually doing it, I mean, it just depends in terms of do you wear a disguise? I mean, it depends what you're doing. So to take two examples, in one case, I was working undercover in a call centre, which was used by a number of major British charities. And I was doing that in order to expose what we were pretty sure were some pretty sharp practices in there in terms of trying to get donations out of very elderly people, vulnerable people, even people with dementia. And what I uncovered there was very shocking. In terms of that investigation, all I really had to do was pretend to be a sort of student who needed a bit of extra cash, because that's what that's the position that most of the the workers were in. And I, um, I just called myself Katie rather than Catherine, and kind of got got around it that way. It was actually quite easy to do that one. But then other ones have been more difficult. So for example, One investigation I did was into scams against elderly people. It kind of led on from the charity investigation. But I I went to a conference in Canada, which was um, ostensibly a marketing conference. But from the investigation that I'd done leading up to it, I knew that this was a group of criminals, essentially, who were writing mass marketing letters, which were designed to scam elderly people out of a lot of money. And I went along to their kind of conference in Canada that they had, which was where they met up and swapped dodgy data lists, basically. So I had to go undercover as a kind of wealthy person who wanted a piece of this 
of this pie who wanted to get involved in this dodgy business and um, in, in these scams and, and make money out of it. So I had to sort of dress up as a kind of wealthy, beautiful stranger. It was a kind of, it was really strange. And I didn't really know how to do that. And so I did wander down to your end of the office, actually, and talk to the girls on on female and features and say, have you got any designer clothes I could borrow that would make me look wealthy? And female were amazing. And they let me into this cupboard that I never knew existed, full of designer clothes and handbags. And they just kitted me out. So I had a whole new wardrobe and we got a load of body cameras fitted into these dresses. And I got away with it for about four days until one of these essentially organized criminals. I mean, they are they they have since been most of the people who are at this conference have been arrested or had their assets frozen by international law enforcement agencies. One of them pulled me to one side and said, you know, I've worked out who you are because I found the credit card that you booked your hotel under and you're Catherine Faulkner and you're a journalist and had to get make a pretty quick escape out of Canada with all my designer handbags oh my at that God. point. Yeah. But I had got enough footage to prove what they were doing and um, we managed to expose them. And yeah, as I say, there's been a big crackdown by uh, US law enforcement and law enforcement in the Netherlands and in the UK and other places. So that was a very satisfying one. It's so interesting. Thank you for telling me about that. That's, I mean, it's like something out of a TV show, um, sort of particularly with the, the added designer handbags and <laughs> international travel. It's very glamorous sounding. Okay, so moving on to your role at the Times, where again, we worked together, you were once again, going back to sort of overseeing lots of different stories as as head of news. I mean, that that is a hugely challenging job. And whenever I see the the news editors or the head of news talking in news conference, I'm always so impressed by them. You mentioned as well, talking in news conference at, at the Mail, do you struggle with that at all, with, with the confidence of, I suppose, being um, in those big meetings and making a case for why certain stories should be done? Because it can be daunting. I mean, when I started doing news conference, I, I remember being so nervous. Um, or are you just totally, have you always been quite comfortable talking in front of people? Your, your imposter syndrome at university would suggest otherwise. I think I'm a lot more confident now and comfortable with it. And that comes from experience and knowing that you have the experience to to be able to see, you know, what is and isn't a good story. And and it's and I think um, being a, just learning to trust your instincts, actually. But that takes time. I think I did have the right instincts. And that's why I was encouraged to sit on the news desk and was trained up in that way at the mail. And I was mentored and taught to do it. But I think I do have a really good instinct for it. And I think the more experience you have, the easier it becomes. And the easier, the more times you sit in what used to be termed at the mail, the dunking stool, which is the chair in the middle of the room where you, you know, you're placed as the news editor and you have to present this news list. The more times you do it, the easier it becomes like anything, I suppose. I think I have grown in confidence a lot from doing the kind of hard knocks news, news reporter and news desk training in my 20s. And I think bizarrely motherhood has given me some confidence and, and also a kind of impatience for you just don't have time to waste your time thinking, am I good enough? Am I OK at this? You you just I don't when I had my baby, I just suddenly thought, what was I doing with my time in the past when I thought I was busy? I, I just and I when I came back to work, I had this 
I was very aware. I, I didn't come back. To, I didn't go back to work full time. I c- came back to the times I was allowed to do what's they called a compressed week, which is three really long days per week, which was great for me because I had two days with my daughter. And I was very, very grateful that the times allowed me to do that. And I shared the role of head of news with somebody else who was doing a similar thing. And so I had these three long days, but I was really aware I had three days to do everything in that I wanted to achieve, which meant news, you know, being head of news for the paper on a daily basis, but also looking ahead to the Saturday paper, which was my responsibility and developing ideas and projects for the Saturday paper, which is a very important edition of the paper each week. And um, I just didn't, I just didn't have time to kind of worry about it and worry if I was good enough, you just crack on and do it. And um I think that is a great thing about having kids. And it was exactly the same thing that happened to me with writing a novel in a way, actually, because it just suddenly occurred to me, I've had all this time up to this point at which I've had a baby when I could have been writing on the weekends or I could have been trying to do all the things that I'd quite like to do. And somehow I've just not got round to it. Or perhaps I was secretly worrying that I would write a book and all my friends would know I was writing a book and then it would fail and not get published and everyone would think less of me or laugh at me or I don't know I I think I, I in the back of my mind I had that and after I had my baby I just didn't care about that anymore I just thought oh my god if I'm not careful I'm not going to have time to do all the things that I want to achieve in my life and I really want to write a book and who cares what people think of me and I need to if I'm going to do it I need to get organized and I need to get on with doing it um I don't quite know why having a baby changed my my mindset on that but actually I think I've achieved more since becoming a mother because I've just developed this quite no-nonsense attitude about it and you just have to think so carefully about your time and work out okay what is it that I really want to do what is it that I really want to achieve and what chunks of time can I devote to those things and you become incredibly militant about it or I did in order to to achieve the things you want either professionally or personally or a kind of mixture of the two. That's so interesting. I remember a very cool woman that I worked for once saying something similar, actually, that becoming a parent had made her more efficient with her time. And there's sort of no messing around. And you have to just schedule things into blocks of blocks of time. And there is some kind of behavioral psychology into the idea that um, you can be more creative when working under restricted conditions like a time limit Um or so on. So I wonder if, all, you know, that, that comes into play as well. Just going back to books and publishing, you mentioned that you'd started writing several books before, but you sort of knew they weren't quite right. And can you just tell me when you say started writing, kind of what had you done? And what kind of books were they? Were they also thrillers? Or were they just completely a sort of scattergun array of attempts at fiction? Yeah, they were different things. I started writing a couple of different novels when I was at university. But I mean, I'd be very embarrassed for anyone to look at that now. They they were just terrible. And I think partly they were terrible, not because I was a terrible writer, but because I just hadn't lived really, I hadn't really done anything. And so they were just necessarily about the kind of I don't know, heartache and, you know, being young. They were just bored without any perspective, though, you know, and, and some people can be really young and write really well about all that stuff but you know I'm no Sally Rooney and they were they were terrible and they deservedly went in the bin those books and I, but I kind of knew that they weren't very good but it doesn't mean that it was a waste of time doing them it's just that you know they were never going to get published and then I 
wrote I actually wrote a sitcom <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing to admit this but I did I wrote a sitcom about being a graduate trainee journalist because it was such a mad experience I mean some of the things that we had to do as trainee reporters on a national paper the, the things you get sent out to were so bonkers and I just thought it would make a really funny kind of thick of it style comedy but of course I mean I just wrote that and then I sent it off to I think the BBC writers room never heard anything back which was fine it was quite fun writing it so just different things like that then writing a novel I just always deep down thought I would do it but I needed an idea that gripped me and that kept me going through a whole first draft and that was what Greenwich Park was I felt really strongly this was the idea that was going to keep my interest and I would keep going at it and I and I did and I think the Faber course helped with that but I think I would have always finished that book because I really I, I got really interested in these characters I'd created I suppose and I started to enjoy spending time with them and um and yeah so so that I think that was kind of what I needed a bit of age a bit of maturity a bit of life experience and also a, a really good idea can I ask a few things about how you kind of uh, uh, how you actually wrote it did you plot the whole thing out first because it is it is very plotty in the sense that without giving too much away there's sort of various twists and revelations along the way and and you know they're quite key to it's a domino effect in the sense that that you know one is key to the next one did you have that all planned or was it a bit more whimsical in 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 the writing no I didn't really plot it which is strange to admit because I think plotting's really important, but I kind of do it backwards. So, and I've done the exact same thing with my my second book, which I've just finished a first draft of. I start with characters, I think, and an idea about an atmosphere. And I had a really strong idea of the atmosphere I wanted to create in Greenwich Park. Um, and that was more important to me in the beginning to get that right. And I think if I had thought too much about pinning myself down to a kind of corkboard of plot points, that I wouldn't have been able to kind of relax into writing writing those early chapters that kind of established the, the feeling and the, and the setup that I wanted to establish. And I hope that doesn't sound too pretentious, but it just is the way that I, it, that feels more natural to me to write. And I kind of feel that if you give your characters a bit of freedom as you're writing a scene to kind of do what feels right as you write it then sometimes that benefits the plot anyway but I got about halfway into it and then I I had a clearer idea of what the story was going to be and at that point I did sit down and plot it but only I plotted it and then changed it quite a lot even even after that point as I was writing it as it occurred to me oh actually no I think it would work better if that happened and then that happened and I kind of felt my way naturally through it. But then when I did the second draft, I thought much more carefully about the plot and whether it was working, whether the pace was working at certain points and whether whether each thread was tied together properly at the end and all of that sort of thing. But I found that easier to do when I had, I'd written out the story in my head, if that makes sense. And then came, came back and made sure that the pace was working and that the plotting was tighter. And of course, it's been through several edits now because I did an edit with my agent when I got an agent. And then once um, the book was bought by, by Bloomsbury, they wanted to do a couple of big edits with it as well. So it's been through a few iterations. But I'm not a, I'm not somebody, to answer your question, I'm not one of these people who has a spreadsheet before they start 
and and kind of thinks right this is what's going to happen in chapter one chapter two chapter three I just can't um it doesn't come naturally to me to write like that and I actually kind of think the fun of it is sitting down and just making up a story in a way that's and if I, I think if I wasn't doing that I I would I would sort of struggle to get through it I think the enjoyment for me is a is kind of plugging into that flow on some level and 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 just writing and then kind of working out and tightening up the plot kind of comes later for me did you do anything then kind of instead of plotting did you do anything to kind of develop the characters or do any research I mean in terms of I one thing that I thought about the book was that there was a quite strong sense of place there's a lot of sort of architecture and kind of wandering around and did you do anything like like that at all Mm, I did spend a lot of time in Greenwich Park and around that area and just kind of looking in people's windows I mean I do that anyway because I'm really strange um no I love doing that it's my favorite thing (laughs) it's really good in our area as well like because people have really nice decor (laughs) I think um yeah I did I um I I spent a lot of time pushing my pram around Greenwich Park and uh And I actually even picked out houses that I wanted my characters to live in. I sort of know where Helen lives and where Serena lived. And um, I had ideas about the pub that they would meet in and things like that. Places that I find Greenwich so atmospheric. And I I thought it was a really, I think it's a really interesting backdrop for this novel because it's, it's sort of ostensibly beautiful, but there is a kind of seediness and a darkness under the surface. I think little places in Greenwich, the, the park after dark, it's not very well lit. And the tunnel that goes under the river is really creepy. And um, there is a kind of seedy side to that bit down by the river. And um, and that's kind of similar to Helen's life. It's sort of perfect on the surface. And then as we go through the novel, we realise the kind of superficiality of her privilege and that perfection. And you mentioned getting an agent. You said when I when I got an agent and so on. Can you just tell me briefly what that, that process was of first getting an agent and then getting a book deal? Mm. So yeah, I didn't know anything about all that stuff until I did the Faber course. That was one thing they were quite helpful with. But the way you do it is that you finish your book and you get it into the best shape that you possibly can on your own to the point where you're just so sick of it and you can't look at it anymore. And then you're supposed to query agents, which is you have to look at each agent is different in terms of what they want in terms of a query but most of them it's something along the lines of the first three chapters or something like that um or the first five chapters that they want you to send them plus a covering letter and then you you send out you know whatever they want and you hope for the best and and then they request a full manuscript if they want it if they're interested in your query and then if they like your manuscript and they think they can sell it they'll offer you representation it was slightly different for me because of the because of having done the Faber course, because at the end of the Faber course, there is a an agent's day where um, agents come and listen to the readings of the students on the Faber course. So I read from from the early version of what was to become Greenwich Park. I think it was called The House on the Park then. And um, after I read my excerpt, I had quite a few agents interested in reading the full manuscript at the Faber day who kind of came up to me and gave me their cards which is super exciting (laughs) (laughs) so um in fact I had a lot I had I think it was about 16 in the end who wrote to me after the anthology was published they also publish an anthology after the Faber course with everybody's work in it and a few agents had read that as well and then um came back to me so I said to them well when I finished the full manuscript when I'm ready to send it out I'll send it to you so when I 
finished, I sent it out to, um, when I thought it was finished, I sent it out to everyone who'd requested it, which was, I think it was sort of, it must've been 14 or so agents who had requested it off the back of the anthology. And then I also sent it to two agents who I really were kind of my dream agents that I really wanted to read it. And luckily I was offered representation by, I think almost all of them and including my two dream agents. And I ended up signing with Madeline Milburn, who is just an absolutely fantastic literary agent and who I straight away knew would be, I wanted to represent me as soon as I met her and she fed me coffee and croissants in her lovely office and said, you know, here's, here's all the books I've done and here's all the people I work with. And I could just tell she and I would get on really, really well. And we do. And she's great. But she kind of charmed me into it also by saying, oh, there's hardly anything that needs doing to your book. It's wonderful. But then as soon as I'd signed with her, she said, right, we've got quite a lot of work to do here, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, these are all the things I think you need to to change about the book and do a big edit on it. And actually, she was completely right. Um, and then once we'd done that and she was happy, then she sent the book out to the publishers that she thought would be interested in it. And I was very lucky that a number of them were interested in it and there was an auction for the for the rights. And, and in the end, I decided to go with Bloomsbury Raven, who are Bloomsbury's crime and thriller imprint. And they've just been absolutely fantastic. And it's the perfect home for Greenwich Park. They just got the book straight away. My editor, Alison Hennessy, was so passionate about it and obviously just understood the book as well as I did it was kind of spooky meeting her really and um so that's how it happened it's funny you keep saying you were very lucky when of course it's all completely down to your own hard work and talent I <laughs> but I mean it's obviously it's very nice that you say that but I, I feel like women always say that anyway that's a whole mm. other podcast isn't it <laughs> um, the, um maybe maybe we should say they were very lucky to have you in your your book um except that I suppose I also do I think over the past few years have really been able to reflect on the level of privilege that I do have that's allowed me to to write this book and it's all about things like having spare time and having enough money to take an extended maternity leave and do a novel writing course and to pay for myself to do that and to have a spare room in my house where I can write and to be able to pay for childcare and having a supportive family who would take my baby sometimes while I could write and all of I don't take any of those things for granted I suppose that's what I mean when I say I'm lucky I'm delighted that the book has been you know uh, that that people liked the book and and wanted to publish it but of course there must be so many people who don't get the opportunity to do what I did and um and 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 that really is luck so (laughs) that's a really good point that is a really really good point this book is coming out now, which is very exciting. But you've you mentioned you've got a, another book that you finished the first draft of. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what else is going on in your life? Sort of what next for you? What your your plans are? Sure. Well, my second book is um, has been a struggle. <laughs> I um, so this is a kind of this is going to sound awful, but I also have tried to write this one on maternity leave because I've just had an, I've had another baby. I thought I could just pull the same trick again, basically, but it's been a lot harder this time. Obviously, I wanted to have a baby anyway, but um, I sort of thought, oh, well, you know, my older daughter's in nursery now and I'll have a maternity leave and maybe I can try and, you know, find that time again to to write a first draft. 
actually um, a few weeks after my daughter was born, lockdown happened. And so my daughter's nursery shut and childcare was, it was just me at home with the two of them, um, a two and a half year old and a newborn. So my novel writing time was, was limited to say the least. And actually it was really, I found it really tough to get started. So for one reason or another, um, it's been trickier this time round, but it is again a psychological thriller and um it's set in a different part of london it's actually set in north london where i live around highbury and hackney and woodbury down woodbury down's quite a um important location for it i'm not sure how much i can say about it yeah um, don't worry. At, at the moment but um i'm really looking forward to kind of introducing it to people and again I'm always really interested in relationships between women and how they can turn toxic. And I'm also really, really interested in the specific psychological impact of motherhood and early motherhood and the um, and the ways in which that um, can take its toll psychologically. So it's very much um, in that in that area, like Greenwich Park, and it touches on those issues. And I thought it was really interesting that Greenwich Park got labelled as part of this literary trend, I guess, called mum noir. Mum noir. <laughs> the dark side of motherhood. But um, if Greenwich Park fits in that category, my second book is very firmly, very firmly in that category. So, yes, I'm excited to introduce it to people. I hope people like it. One of the things I've really enjoyed on this podcast, but also in my own reading over the past kind of year, two years, is, is this proliferation of female written thrillers that have lots of different aspects of female lives I mean you know whether they're about motherhood or or other things um it feels like there's there's a lot of cool female written thrillers around right now but is, isn't it so weird that this is seen as this kind of weird niche category I mean the female experience and the experience of motherhood and writing about it in an honest way you know with all the kind of darkness as well as lighter side I mean it, that shouldn't be controversial or strange but of course it 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 kind of is and these books that are coming out now like the the push and um stories about motherhood that are honest and that are dark sometimes I find them so refreshing I just gobble them up I think they're all amazing but I I do I do sometimes wonder why it's taken so long for for it to have happened really and for it to be a thing I mean it just feels like quite often I I feel like we talk about the female experience and the 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 experience of motherhood as if it is this kind of niche category when when in fact it's very universal and we are 50% of the population and this is what many many not all of us but experience and it's a huge part of our lives and um yeah it does strike me as slightly strange that it's um that it feels kind of new and innovative to write about it but there we are I suppose we still have fiction and women's fiction. (laughs) It's very weird. It's very strange. Very, very strange. Um, I'm glad we don't talk about, you know, women's fiction really anymore because it's, yeah, it's quite a nonsense really. I mean, I could talk to you for another hour, but I'm very conscious of the fact that I've taken up quite a lot of your time and I've, I've got one final question for you before I let you go, which you'll be aware of from listening to the, to the podcast, but, um, it's the question I ask everyone who comes on which is if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be? I suppose I would say that you only get to do the things that you want to do in life by just doing them and 
I suppose I look back on that person who was too scared to go to a student journalism news meeting in her first year of university and I just despair really but I, I suppose I would just say have confidence and and have self-belief and life's too short to worry about what people will think of you and you've just got to if you want to do something you just have to get on and do it no one will do it for you and there won't be some Hollywood moment where somebody will pluck you out of a crowd and say hey shy girl who's standing back you're actually wonderful come and do you know you have to do that to yourself you have to pluck yourself out of the crowd and do it I suppose that would be my oh god that sounds so cheesy but I don't I don't mean it in that way I just mean that it you can't wait around for somebody to kind of see your brilliance that you're secretly hiding under a bushel if you think you're good at something you've just got to go on and and do it and show people and uh and that no one and that it's no good waiting for people to to do it for you or suppose or or see it in you I suppose I completely agree and I think it's fantastic advice um Catherine thank you so much I found that just so interesting I really appreciate your time thank you very much for coming on well thanks so much for having me and to everyone listening Greenwich Park is out now so that's it from me thank you for listening to the Sunday Salon please do share your thoughts about the episode with me I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zania. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do think about leaving a rating or review because it really boosts its success. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye.